When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented the charges. That's our theme verse from Acts chapter 24, verse 2 for this week's Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Senior Pastor Perry Duggar continues the series called Church Extended, this week's episode on trial. Here's this week's spiritual practice. List three things you believe about Jesus, then share them with someone why those beliefs are significant to you. If you want to watch a video of this week's message, listen to worship, search the message archives, visit brookwoodchurch.org slash watch or download the Brookwood Church app. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with the Church Extended series. We pray this message encourages you and your walk with Christ. And now here's Pastor Perry Duggar. You know that feeling sometimes you don't have the strength to hold on to God and you rely on him. Thank you. Holding on to you. We continue our survey of Acts. We're closing in on the end of Acts and we have, uh, have called the latter part of this survey of Acts, the study of Acts as church extended. Today's message is entitled On Trial and it refers to Paul being on trial but also to each of us. Just a little bit of background, I have to bring us forward in case you weren't here last week. In the 23rd chapter of Acts, the Roman commander Lysias in Jerusalem learned of a plot to kill Paul. Paul was in protective custody at that time and so they wanted to kill him while he was being transferred from one place to another. So the Roman commander sent Paul down to Caesarea to the Roman governor Felix. And the commander then told all of Paul's accusers they could travel to Caesarea to take their charges to Felix. I know that's a little confusing. But the Roman commander in Jerusalem took Paul into protective custody. He learns there's a plot to kill him. He transfers him to Caesarea and he tells everyone who has a charge against him to travel there to the Roman governor. Theme verse from Acts chapter 24 says, when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented the charges. You know, I start this uh, message with a quote and it's on your outline. It's um, whether you have the printed version or the online version. And this was something that I didn't um, originate. I heard it actually after I became a believer and I was thinking, goodness, that was back in the 70s. Some of you, um, we had cars like the Flintstones. We had to run. <laughs> if, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Answer that question. You can jot it down there or at least in your mind. Decide the answer to that question. Paul was tried for his faith. But so are we. Usually informally by people who are observing our lives, assessing the reality of our faith. Some of you that are online may be actually receiving accusations of various types. I'm, I'm not online. I can tell you it saves you a lot of heartburn and, you know, 
I urge you, pull the plug, pull the plug. So I don't have Twitter, I don't have Facebook. I mean, look at this face. Who wants a book I've made out of this? But if tried for your faith, first anticipate false accusations. Verse 24. Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived in Caesarea from Jerusalem, 65 miles away, with some of the Jewish elders, that's some members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, and the lawyer Tertullus. Tertullus was a Jew, but obviously very well versed in Roman law to present their case against Paul to the governor. Felix, the governor, was a former slave. He was governor, it says here, but, but actually the title was procurator of Judea, the southern portion of what we call the Holy Land, from 52 to 59 AD. His brother was good friends with the emperor, and so Felix got a promotion, a large promotion. Now, you see, the Sanhedrin was not content to just drive Paul from Jerusalem. It wasn't enough to just end whatever influencing he was having there around the temple. They wanted to see his ministry and even better, his life ended. So they hurried to Caesarea to prevent Governor Felix from releasing Paul. You know, I think we see some cruelty on that level today, don't we? It's not enough to just say, I disagree with you. I have to, I have to destroy you. I have to end you. I'm, um, the cruelty is astounding to me, but we see it displayed here. Verse 2. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented the charges against Paul. He was the prosecutor of Paul. In the following address to the governor, you have provided a long period of peace for us Jews and with foresight have enacted reforms for us. For all of this, your excellency, we are very grateful to you. But I don't want to bore you so please give me your attention for only a moment. So Tertullus is just full of, full of it. <laughs> so he begins with all this flowery, complimentary, very insincere speech because Felix was a brutal, incompetent ruler. And we'll see later in this passage that he was removed from office by Nero two years after this hearing. Turning then to the case against Paul, Tertullus brought three charges. 5a, the beginning of 5 first. We have found this man to be a troublemaker who is constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. And what he means is throughout the whole Roman world. See, this charge of inciting rebellion against Roman authority was called sedition. And it was a serious crime against Rome, a crime punishable by death. 
And Felix was known to be especially cruel toward anyone who fomented rebellion or uprising. He had crucified a number of the leaders and the members of various groups that were involved in riots. Because the, there was a peace that Rome installed called the Pax Romana. Now they installed it with great cruelty and military force, but Felix enforced it by putting people to death. Tertullus, you see, further attempted to portray Paul as a radicalized insurrectionist. And we continue there in verse five. He is a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. Obviously, Jesus was from Nazareth, but Nazareth was kind of a working class neighborhood or small town. The people weren't especially cultured. They were just hardworking folks who were not highly educated. And so they were thought of as rabble rousers, as troublemakers. And so this lawyer wants the governor to associate Paul with these people. He wanted Felix to view really all Christians as some kind of fanatical political party, as a rebellious terrorist group. Now, the lawyer didn't cite any examples of Paul's illegal acts because there were none. Paul actually was the victim of riots, not their initiator. Felix asked no questions because you see, he'd already been informed by a letter from the commander in Jerusalem that this debate involved just Jewish religious law, not anything that Romans should pay attention to and certainly not punish. Now, Tertullus' third charge involved blasphemy against the Jewish faith. See, his strongest arguments would have been those that were supposedly against Rome. And this is the weakest argument where he says, but he's also dishonoring the temple. And Jews, in some instances, were given the permission by the Romans to put people to death. They had to receive permission, though, in order to do that. And so verse 6, which is why Jesus had to be crucified by Romans, but he was put up to it by Jews. Furthermore, he was trying to desecrate the temple. Now, Acts 21, 28 Someone accuses him of trying to bring Gentiles into the temple, but he didn't do that. When we arrested him, that was a lie too, because the Roman commander arrested. So you see, this, this lawyer is taking a piece of truth and distorting it. And he's trying to leave an impression with this governor, but not based on any real factual evidence. There was no evidence that Paul had actually done any of the acts he was accused of. Tertullus' prosecution was an attempt to control the way the governor viewed Paul. And then he sort of closes it out with this somewhat flippant statement. You can find out the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. Say once he planted that idea in. Then the other Jews chimed in declaring that everything Tertullus said was true. You know, in recent years, I've been surprised how little it would take 
for people to be dishonest. Have you? A little money, a little power, get out of an uncomfortable situation. It has, it has astounded me how willing people would be to say virtually anything. I guess I shouldn't be surprised because I, I remember, I only practiced law a very short time, but I remember when I was practicing that few years and trying cases, people would ask me, what should they say? <laughs> and I said, well, you say what you remember. You say what was true. Well, yeah, but what should I say? And I said, well, you just say whatever you remember. I'm not telling you what to say. You know, what, what I see, unfortunately, in the last couple of years, we've had so much conflict, but in an effort to silence people's words on either side, false accusations are often brought up. And labels. I don't know that there's anything less helpful to communication than labels. Do you? On either side. And so labeling a Christian as, as an intolerant extremist is merely an attempt to eliminate your influence. And so let me say, as we are ambassadors for Christ in this culture, has that happened to you? Have you been referred to as narrow-minded, judgmental, something like that? And it isn't true. Be sure it isn't true. But don't accept it. Don't accept it. Paul didn't. And so we see that if tried for your faith, assert faithful answers. Verse 10. The governor then motioned for Paul to speak. Paul said, I know, sir, that you have been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years, actually five. So I, I gladly present my defense before you. Now, I don't think this is as much a, a, an empty flattery as it is Paul reminding Governor Felix that he had served long enough to be familiar with Jewish beliefs and customs. See, it's putting Paul in a kind of a bad place when you have a Roman deciding a case among Jews. So Felix was not familiar. Paul then refuted the charges. First, he pointed out that he was not guilty of insurrection. Verse 11. You can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. See, he was in Caesarea for five days. He'd been in Jerusalem for seven, but his, his focus was on worship, not creating trouble. And then he says, my accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, nor stirring up a riot in any synagogue or on the streets of the city. 
These men cannot prove the things they accuse me of doing. See, Paul immediately admitted his Christian faith. But he denied that it violated Jewish law or scripture. He continues, but I admit that I followed the way. He didn't accept that really um, label, critical label, Nazarene, because originally people were referred to as the way. They saw themselves as part of Judaism, which they call a cult. But I worship the God of our ancestors, which was the historic title for the God of Israel. And I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets, which was really in contrast to the Sadducee accusers. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Now remember one group in the Sanhedrin believed in the resurrection, the other one didn't. Which one believed in the resurrection? Pharisees. And which one didn't? Sadducees. So what he's actually doing is he's declaring he's more biblical than a lot of these folks that are accusing me. Paul was more scriptural than his accusers. He believed the authority of the entire Old Testament. Sadducees didn't. He accepted everything taught in the law and the prophets. See, and Paul's beliefs weren't just something theoretical. They weren't just acceptance of abstract theology or ideas. This actually impacted and controlled his life. And he says at verse 16, because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. So for him, faith wasn't something abstract. Faith was his life. And he lived in a way that reflected what the scriptures taught. For him, it wasn't about power. It wasn't about position. It wasn't even about theological principles. It was a way of life and a relationship. And then to rebut the final accusation of profaning the temple, Paul told of his reason, his reasons for coming to Jerusalem. After several years away, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. So he's demonstrated devotion to God and the temple, and God's people. He didn't come to cause trouble, but to relieve material needs of believers, and then to, to offer worship to God. Paul then participated in a temple ceremony, marking the end of the Nazarite vows. They vowed to, to drink no alcohol, they shaved their heads, and in actually in Acts 21, you see that Paul paid for uh, the action of them having their head shaved. And what he was doing is he was proving his obedience and respect for Jewish law. There was nothing about this man that was defiant to the Jews. In verse 18, my accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony and there was no crowd around me and no rioting. 
Then Paul told the real cause of the disturbance. But some Jews from the Roman province of Asia were there. You can find it in Acts 21. And they ought to be here to bring their charges if they have anything against me. But see, they didn't appear to testify. Paul challenged the Sanhedrin at Acts 24, 20 through 21. Ask these men here what the Jewish high council found me guilty of. Remember, they had been assembled by the Roman commander and it, it basically, it just ended in an uproar, but they came to no conclusion. Except for the one time I shouted out, I am on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Again, which the Pharisees accepted and the Sadducees rejected. See, Paul's saying that nothing he did was against the law. Belief in the resurrection wasn't a crime. Under Jewish law, much less under Roman law, and the issues being debated were theological. They weren't civil. They weren't criminal. It didn't belong in a Roman court. So Paul explained all of his actions reasonably, not angrily. And he defended his faith scripturally. Are we ready to do that? You say, well, I don't understand. I hear all this about Paul and it's confusing to me. Well, any time we read the scripture, even a historical uh, portion, say, how could this apply to me? God, what are you showing me here? I think at least this. If you're accused of wrongdoing, and in our culture sometimes our moral beliefs are accused of being harsh, intolerant, then we must answer truthfully, reasonably, but humbly and explain our actions and our attitudes. But they need to be not our own opinions. They need to be from the scripture, from the Bible. And we must not shy away from saying, this is what God's word teaches me. And this is where I stand. But be careful. Again, I keep repeating this. But you can't be critical, harsh, ugly. You know, for goodness sakes, I hope none of us are engaging in debate in this social media arena. Because see, first we represent God. Before we represent any political party or any political opinion or position. We represent God. So whatever you post, is it representative of God? Is it according to God's word? And there ought to be evidence in our lives that we have the nature of Christ, that we are forgiving, that we are generous, that we do care about our community. You know, that's why I hope that we're able to get behind the idea of a free medical clinic. It'll require more giving for all of us and for some of us to start giving. But I think it shows that we care about all kinds of people. Doesn't matter what political party they're in, doesn't matter the color of their skin, doesn't matter the level of their education. We want to help meet physical needs. We're motivated to do it because of our faith in Christ. 
And Paul is showing that. He says, I collected money. I showed up here in Jerusalem to take care of people who were needy. Have you ever had to defend an action or an attitude? Have you? How many of you have? Let me see a hand or two. Did you feel qualified? Were you able to respond humbly without retreat? We don't completely collapse. We stand firmly but humbly on the scripture. If tried for your faith also, address foolish attitudes. Verse 22. At that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way, so he knew that the charges about Christians were false, adjourned the hearing and said, wait until Lysias, the garrison commander, arrives. Then I will decide the case. See, there were no eyewitnesses. The Sanhedrin had no verdict to argue. Felix should have released Paul. He didn't because he took a politically expedient position. If he had released Paul, the Jewish leaders would have been furious, which may have led to more riots or unrest. Felix did not want word about him causing rioting to go back to the emperor. So he adjourned without making a decision using the excuse he was waiting on the commander to arrive. But he had already received a letter from the commander, remember. So he knew what the commander thought. He ordered an officer to keep Paul in custody to satisfy the Jews, but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him and take care of his needs because he was a Roman citizen and he hadn't been convicted of any crime. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, see how he, he's stating all that's true in the scripture. I think sometimes we, we are afraid to tell that part of the gospel that includes judgment. We don't want to offend. We don't want someone to refuse what we're saying. But you see how Paul presents the whole of the good news. But we do it out of love for people, not out of criticism. But Felix became frightened. Now, see, the backstory is that Felix had lured 16-year-old Drusilla away from her husband to become his third wife. So he was obviously lacking self-righteousness or righteousness, and he was lacking self-control. So the idea of judgment really frightened him. Despite his fear, Felix ended the conversation instead of inquiring about faith. Go away for now, he says. When it is more convenient, I'll call for you again. 
But look at this. He also hoped that Paul would bribe him, although it was clearly illegal against Roman law. So he sent for him quite often and talked with him. The spiritual conviction that, that, that something was happening that caused this man to reflect on himself, but he, he stepped away from that and he slid back and started acting on his corruption. He wanted Paul to bribe him. And after two years went by this way, Paul never bribed him, neither did any other Christian. Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus because Nero removed the corrupt Felix for brutality. And because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. Even though Paul was innocent. Folks, are we willing to do hard things to honor God? Or are we so concerned that we might face any opposition that we will just say nothing and comply with whatever someone's pressing us to do? We can't do that. You know, our, our country, those of us that are my age, felt like we were raised in a Christian nation. I don't know if, if that's technically correct, but morally it appeared that way outwardly, didn't it? We don't see that today. So the need for us to stand on biblical truth, on Christian morality is needed in our culture. But don't see it as a, as a way to battle. That's the wrong motivation. We see it as a way to offer good news to people who may be distorted and caught up in wrong thinking. Paul shared the gospel with this governor. And the governor could control whether he lived or not. But the governor didn't have enough courage to pursue the question further. So Felix foolishly missed an opportunity to hear about Jesus, to decide, have we, have we pressed in? Have we asked, tell me about Christ. Tell me the good news and taking the time to pray it through, to talk to God, to come to a decision. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says this, for God says at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. And today is the day of salvation. Our care volunteers will be here. Is today the day of salvation for you? Is today the day for you to heed the good news, to hear the word of Christ, to respond by faith, 
Do you need help? Do you need someone to talk to you? Our care volunteers will be here. They can come to the front right now as I pray. Father, help us to understand that today is the day of salvation. And if any of us, Lord, have not sealed that decision to follow you, I pray that today would be the day that you would help us by your spirit to take a step to receive this good news, to be born again. Pray that you would call to each of us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. Our memory verse is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. At Brookwood, we want to help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. One way you can do this is by getting connected to Brookwood. Please email us, connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on our connections team. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week.